0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at at new films or films on streaming services and then compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm a freelance writer and film enthusiast here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox.
1: I'm a film writer, a blogger. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca.
0: I'm also the host of the Knox office on CBC Information Morning. And this week we're going off book a little bit. We're not really looking at something new this time around. We decided to do a a variation on something we've done before look at some films by our favorite directors or some of our favorite directors and and uh try and find some of the films by them that we haven't explored to date either i haven't seen them carsten hasn't seen them or neither of us have seen them and uh have a look at these uh maybe what some cons- people consider minor works and delve into them and pass along their, uh, our opinions to you and we'll see you right after this
1: So as you explained, Stephen, we're doing a little bit of a, uh, a capsule, what do they call it, a capsule show, a, uh, a a left turn in our
0: usual mandate for Lends Me Your Ears? Yeah, I guess it's sort of similar to our great movies shows that we've done, uh, where we've, uh, you know, kind of gone through uh, Ebert's list of great movies, his four or five star films, and uh, that we haven't seen before. Because that's one of the great things about this show is it's the opportunity to see a lot of stuff that we haven't seen before. It gives us an excuse to to pull stuff down off the shelf that's been collecting dust or, or, <laughs> or, or seek out titles that have been either hard to find or that uh, we just uh, haven't been able to uh, g- catch up with yet.
1: Yeah, and and literally pull down off the shelf in some cases because yes. we are uh, tactile, physical media people. So I know I will occasionally purchase A DVD or a Blu-ray of a film I haven't seen, but I really want to because it's otherwise difficult to find and then it sometimes will sit there on the shelf because I haven't made time to actually watch it. Uh, But a number of these films, I think most of them, if not all of them are available to people on streaming services as well. So just, you know, wherever you're listening to us, go looking for it Um, if you have just watch in your region, that's a good place to, that That website's a good place to, to look for films to see whether or not uh, you can find them
0: streaming anywhere near you. And uh, it's really helpful for me, too, because I, I uh, am a recent convert to the world of VPNs, where you can alter your IP to be uh, in another region. And as luck would have it, um, like in Canada, we have CBC Gem, which is a free service. It does have ads, but there's lots of TV shows and lots of films that are available on Gem that don't cost you anything. Uh, but you need to be, uh, you know, on a Canadian computer or service or what have you. They haven't put it on Roku yet. I'm still very upset about that. But I wish uh, <laughs> they would just put it on the, the Roku so it'd be a lot more easier than hooking a computer up to the television. But uh, having said that, uh, there's similar services in lots of other countries. There's, you know, PBS in the States. Uh, Australia has a couple of free services that have lots of films and TV shows you can't see in Canada. And uh, But if um, if your computer is kind of Sending out signals that it's not in that country, then you can't get access to yeah. that. So it's 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 worth it if if you really want to explore uh, television and film from other places. It's uh, it really opens up a whole new world with uh, with a VPN. Yeah, of course, uh, in the UK, the BBC iPlayer, which yes, I mean, exactly, I've checked
1: out a few That's things a on one. with my VPN. Um, and you know, of course, we talk about free services available to us here, like Canopy and uh, Hoopla, which should we get through our library. Um, anyway, all of which to say, <laughs> exactly. we're uh, watching films that neither of us had seen before, or hadn't seen in a long time, uh, that the other person had never seen. And we just sort of went through some of our favorite or or notable filmmakers in, through their catalogs to see what was out there. We're gonna start, we're gonna go alpha, we're gonna go, <laughs> not alphabetical, <laughs> <laughs> chronological. <laughs> we're, we're gonna go chronological, that's the way. Through uh, the sands of time. And we are starting with a film from 1930, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, and I mean, you know, Hitchcock was enormously prolific, so no surprise, there are a few of his films Neither of us have seen. And this is called Murder, with an exclamation point. So we must say murder. Murder! When we say (laughs) it. Uh, From 1930, it's the third talkie directed by Hitchcock. And uh, yeah, as with so many of his films, it is wonderfully witty and involving murder mystery. It's set in London's theater community, where an actor has been accused of murder of one of her fellow thespes. One of the jury, his name is Saint, is uh, Sir John. He's a uh, he's a he's a, a theater man himself, and he doesn't think the woman whose name is Diana Bar- Baring has is guilty of the crime. But the assembled jury, they browbeat him into being the finally final guilty vote and and that's an amazing scene. Uh, I love that jury scene. The the entire group of them say in unison, "How do you how do you how do you respond, sir John?" <laughs> yes, it gets very theatrical. It's like it's like almost like a musical theater moment. Um, afterwards, after she has been consigned and, you know, she's waiting for the gallows, he takes it upon himself to find out the truth about Bering. He recruits the stage manager, Markham, and the stage manager's wife to help him out while he conducts his investigation, which eventually leads him to the actual guilty party. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is one I don't even know if I was aware of. I I love the way it was shot. There's a wonderful scene early on where a detective interviews actors backstage as they're about to go onto the play and they enter on and off stage and we sort of see part of the stage through a gap in the set while they're walking in and out through a door I mean it's it's ridiculous that the detectives would be be quizzing these actors while they're just about <laughs> to go to, the set scenes, yeah, between yeah. scenes but it's really fun to watch it's very charming Um and uh, I love there's a scene where the when the stage manager and his wife are getting dressed to meet Sir John. There's this wonderful montage of them, like, combing their hair and putting on their clothes. And there's all this stuff which I consider very modern that Hitchcock was doing in 1930.
0: Yeah, he's definitely uh, feeling his oats here and trying new things and pulling out all the stops to make it interesting visually. I don't think he was... That compelled by the actual material of the play, uh, you know. He later said in later years that you know the, the the story is a whodunit, and it was not his favorite type of film. He he, uh, he obviously was known for more thriller suspense type films as opposed to pure mysteries. So here he's working in kind of an Agatha Christie mode, which was not really his style at all. You wouldn't think there'd be that much of a difference because there was kind of a, a mystery element to say the lady vanishes, for example, where they're trying to figure out what happened to this woman on a train, which could be a kind of Agatha Christie style plot, but it also has political layers and, and, and the thriller and suspense elements that you'd find in later films, you know, up to North by Northwest and so on. But, uh, but he's he's definitely experimenting and trying to extend uh, what he's already done in his previous sound picture, Blackmail, which was the first sound feature produced in the UK. So uh, there were probably a couple more between this and, and that, but this is Hitchcock's second sound film. And he's, he's trying to do interesting stuff. Like there's a scene where, um, Herbert Marshall who plays Sir John has this inner monologue and, and he's like staring in the, into the mirror and thinking about, you know, what he could have done to save poor, uh, poor Diana Baring, who's, who's facing the gallows and, and you know, how, whether or not she, she, she could be innocent of this, uh, of this crime. And, and they basically just played, they, you know, recorded his voice to disc and then played it back on set and he just kind of stared into the mirror and kind of acted out his thoughts while they played back the sound. And it's you know, it, it a voiceover like that is just it would is like the easiest thing in the world to do now. But then they had to come up with a way to do it on set that would register on film. And maybe they post dubbed it later just so they could have it um you know, sound like it wasn't coming off of a record, I guess, but but it's it's a very effective scene, and and at the time, it's quite revolutionary, and it has a the climax uh, at a circus uh, where they where they kind of hone in on the suspect, and and he's doing an aerial act. Um, is uh, you know everything kind of comes to a big rush at the conclusion, but the final scenes uh, at the circus are an amazing example of of editing and and uh, you know very Eisensteinian, if you want to get uh, technical. And, I, and I, I thought that was very, uh, very clever, very well done as well. Yeah, I did too.
1: I, I liked all of that sort of structural stuff. And politically speaking, I thought it was sort of fascinating when we discover what the murderer's motivation is. Uh, I think it says a lot about sort of tropes racism at the time and the fact that the character is, has also is sort of a professional crossdresser is an interesting one it suggests a queer subtext i think the film actually has a lot of sympathy for this character up to a point i guess but uh, but i found that an interesting thing to sort of you know tap into of course it speaks to hitchcock's interest in people's secrets which is very much in dis- on display here
0: yeah and there's a female barrister in the court scene at the start which I have to think was fairly ahead of its time in terms of uh, representation on screen of a female lawyer in a British court, considering how old boys school, the British legal system would have been at that time. I have to think that that was a pretty, uh, and maybe that was in the play. I don't know, but it, it seems like an interesting, uh, character note for for Hitchcock to include there yep you
1: mentioned that that big top uh finale and we get there's a shot in that sequence that I love there's a just very very briefly you get an instant of a clown in full grease paint looking up in horror (laughs) yes it's (laughs) It's a great shot it's just it's so and it's so fast that you almost it's almost just enters your brain subliminally you know what I mean um yeah yeah no that's great moment uh and you know uh, sorry, you were going to say something.
0: Oh, we should. Well, I was going to mention that there's also... Um, so there's a new restoration of this. I had an old DVD of it, of a pretty decent-looking copy. The film, I believe, is public domain. And if you want to see it and don't have a physical copy, you might have to go onto YouTube. I, I couldn't find it streaming anywhere, which is weird. If it's public domain, you'd think it would just be on Tubi or something like that. And maybe it is and just hasn't shown up in the Just Watch database. But it, it shouldn't be that hard to find a copy. But um, the version I have, which was, you know... a, a it wasn't a public domain DVD. It was actually from a quality early Hitchcock uh, DVD set. But there's a newer, better-looking version out via Kina Lorber on Blu-ray and presumably DVD. And uh, it, it, it's a really nice-looking restoration. The, some of the film jitter in my old DVD is gone. It's not present in this Blu-ray. It looks sharp. You can hear the dialogue, which can sometimes in those early talkies it can be kind of muffled. And it includes a German-language remake of the film that Hitchcock did Immediately after finishing uh, the English version, he redid it with German actors for the German film market because, you know, full on dubbing of films uh, was not a thing that was happening at that point. And it's it's interesting, like to see a completely different version of the same film, uh, but using some of the same. Uh, shots like uh, the, 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 big climax at the circus, it's all, he didn't, he wasn't going to refilm and re-edit all of that stuff. Uh, so, so there's a lot of uh, mix of like new footage and, and old footage and it's interesting to compare the two. I, I, think that the, the German version, the actor is a little more reserved. Um, a little less, you know, full on character actor type, uh. Actors than uh, the the British actors, and he's maybe not as comfortable as uh, in directing them as he would have been with the British actors. People like uh, uh, Una O'Connor shows up as a landlady uh, in a in a great short bit, and of course she would go on to Hollywood character actor success in films like I think Bride of Frankenstein and so on. But um, anyway, the, you know it, it's interesting to compare and and. Uh, and and see uh, what he was doing in a completely different language with the same story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the German version is called Mary, incidentally, uh, and that's on the Kino Lorbert disc that we watched. Um, so let's sort of you know jump forward in time to our second film of our uh, you know I guess missed movies from favorite directors, and it's Martin Scorsese's first feature. Who's that knocking at my door? From 1967. This is not one I had ever seen. Uh, Great to have a chance to catch up with it. Uh, Stephen, why don't you uh, talk about what this yeah, movie is about? Yeah, well,
0: I, I, think it was, uh, I think it shows up on TCM from time to time. I have it in a, in a box set of the Scorsese films that were produced through uh, Warner Brothers. Uh, and uh, this one was eventually picked up for distribution by Warner Brothers. And became more w- circulated. Once he really made his name a few years later with uh, Mean Streets, uh, Than uh, Scorsese's anything with his name on it was certainly uh, a valuable property, and this and this film is is ostensibly kind of a student film that's been expanded to a, uh, a feature length. Uh, I saw I first saw a bit of it on one of the like the the Great Money movie or one of those you know afternoon movie you know local network TV kind of shows that would show a movie and then you know. Play bingo between <laughs> between reels or something like that, and it was a very distracting way to watch the film. And I I I'm sure I only watched you know twenty minutes or so of it, and I found it kind of fascinating. I already at that point I, you know I was I think I was probably in my teens, but I knew who Harvey Keitel was. I'd seen him in a few things, and I just figured I would return to it someday in a less obtrusive um, format, and uh, so. Here we are, it's on DVD uh, in a nice edition with uh, some commentary by Scorsese about his early days coming out of film school and making this first film. And basically it's an adaptation of a short film uh, that he had started about a bunch of guys in the old Italian neighborhood in New York. And then he expanded it with a love story um, where one of the hoods, J.R. played by Harvey Keitel meets this young woman at the Staten Island Ferry waiting room and they begin a, a relationship and a romance and, and it kind of bounces back and forth between their story and the story of him and his kind of they're not exactly gangsters. They're they're more just kind of like guys from the neighborhood who kind of get up to to hijinks and, and maybe do some low level crimes and and they fight with other sort of mini gangs, if you will. In fact, you can see Scorsese. Uh, in the the opening scenes as one of the fellow hoods who's in a big uh fight scene in the street and it's kind of funny seeing uh y- young Marty trying to be tough it's it's very oh, amusing oh, oh. but um so so basically you've got uh, JR uh who's uh he you know he hangs out with his friends he's very comfortable with his pals uh, when they hang out at the um the 8th ward pleasure club which is i guess like a men's drinking establishment uh in little italy and but uh he feels a little bit apart from them he's he's kind of a a young film nerd so obviously um keitel who looks impossibly young here it's 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 hard to imagine him i'm sure he's in his 20s and he just he just uh, really even in this film he kind of commands the scene the the, the camera he's very uh, engaging and um you know, charismatic as, as JR, but he's, he's uh, you know, he's into films and he's, he likes uh, the girl played by Zena Bethune, who's in fact a dancer, not really an actor uh, per se. And she's in a handful of things in small roles, but really her thing was dancing. And uh, you know, they meet and they're talking about John Ford movies and and he, she's reading a movie magazine, so they bond over that. And and so you, you get the, the, the Scorsese surrogate in JR. He's obviously kind of telling these adapted stories of his time growing up in the neighborhood. And then, um, so basically you've got on the one hand, the guys... Uh, hanging out and sort of ribbing each other and doing that guy thing, kind of like um, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Patty Chayesky's Marty with Ernest Borgnine. You know, what do you want to do tonight, Marty? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? It's, it's kind of like that. And in fact, in the commentaries, Chris Sessi makes fun of those comparisons because I'm sure that was made a lot at the time this film came out. And so while uh, Jr. And, and the girl, we never learn her name, uh, sort of – continue to talk about movies and meet up. And he shows her his pigeons that he's got up on the roof and stuff like that. Um, you know, we see, we see the guys kind of hanging out and at one point uh, the, they go on a, on a, an excursion to the Hudson River Valley where they hang out in a small town called Copake. Um, up near Albany and you know, they're, they're from the city. They don't, you know, they're up in the mountains in the woods and they're really kind of out of their element. And that aspect is kind of funny. And there is a lot of, of humor in it, but then it turns out the, the, the girl has an incident in her past, a disturbing um, incident of sexual assault that, uh, you know, she's reticent to tell Jr. And when she does, he doesn't take it so well. And, uh, and that kind of signals a decline in that relationship, and then in the meantime, he's kind of outgrowing the gang that he's hanging out with. So it's 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 a pretty loose film, you know, especially if you consider that it's like a short film welded to this kind of love story where they they don't really intersect that much aside from from Kaitel. And then uh, this in the middle of it all, there's kind of a trippy. Uh, sex scene that was shot in Amsterdam because the distributor wanted to put some some nudity into the film. So they took Harvey, Harvey Keitel to to Amsterdam and and set this sex scene with a variety of nude women to uh, the end by the doors, which feels so out of place because up to that point, all the music on the soundtrack has been doo-wop. So all of a sudden you, you get this trippy sequence. So it doesn't all necessarily hang together, but because it's Scorsese and he's trying a lot of things there's a lot of you know flashy you know you know camera angles you know like in the train station all of a sudden we're watching their conversation from up above why uh, because he thought on the day it'd be fun to do it that way i guess and there's there's uh in the scene in Amsterdam there's lots of um you know funky editing and close-ups and and things like that so it's it's you're you're basically just kind of watching him you know stretch his legs uh in a feature for the first time but there's a lot to enjoy in it as we as we move along and I I really enjoyed the film and, and it kind of hints, uh, you know, we're going to see elements of this film in in Mean Streets coming up, and and even later in Goodfellas even. So, you know, you can definitely see the talent that's there and where Scorsese's going to wind up.
1: Yeah, it definitely is a film that must have inspired other filmmakers. I was thinking about the way that uh, these guys talk about themselves and about women, and it reminded me of it's actually a nicer way than John Travolta described women in Saturday Night Fever. So there's another connection of 1970s, you know, Italian-Americans in New York. Uh, Of course, Scorsese Says these mean streets. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought the film was really solid, really interesting. I mean, it, it as you say, it does feel like a student film, um, you know. And some of that is is it's hard to listen to some of these guys because they're so dumb and they're so like they're <laughs> yes. so into their own scene and they they're completely narrow minded. Which is, I think, the the coming of age aspect of Keitel's Jr. That's what makes it interesting. Is what he learns about himself within this kind of this. This uh, milieu of people that he is not as connection with, connected with, but then he's got this relationship with this woman that's uh, that's affecting him, and and of course um, he doesn't react well, as you mentioned, to to this information about her past. Uh, I think what struck me here is is Scorsese is so well known for stories of men and uh, and their issues and sin and regret and and guilt. Uh, you know all these Catholic kind of. Uh, issues and that's very much in place here. But yeah, but there's a lot also of Catholicism. a lot of Catholicism. <laughs> but there's also a very a strong feminist message. You know, she the the girlfriend the girl, as she's only known, tells Jr. about this assault and uh, that that his toxic sort of masculine perspective. Of course, they wouldn't have called it toxic masculinity no. at the time. Uh, is is comes up out of him, and so he thinks she's lying to him, and he thinks she's somehow to blame for what happened to her, and it's brutal. But it, the film seems. To be saying he's incapable of understanding or empathizing or growing and in the end you know he seeks refuge in the church and maybe she's better off alone uh you know no spoilers but that it, it's it's a dark uh you know i think not an optimistic ending and uh and i i just and, and and it clearly he suffers as a result i mean really for his inability to grow or empathize with what she's been through means that he is stuck and that's feels like what the the theme of the film is in many respects. Again, talking about men and their guilt and their perceived sins and their regret. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, think, I think in this first feature, Scorsese proves he understands how awful that kind of masculine culture is and or can be, I guess. And uh, I thought that was fascinating.
0: Yeah, he's certainly very sympathetic to the girl, and she comes off as a very strong character. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a shame, uh, she, uh, didn't do more stuff, uh, Xena Bethune, but, um, it's, if you can look up her life, she actually had kind of a, a tragic end at the end of her life, which is kind of sad. I'm not going to go into it here, but, um. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting character and, and if, you know, we see, we see that in some other Scorsese films. I mean, Boxcar Bertha has a very strong, um, Barbara Hershey performance, even though he's kind of down on the film because it was an exploitation film for Roger Corman, but still it does have this strong female character at its center. And of course, um, Alice doesn't live here anymore. So it's, you know, it's something he would return to and, uh, you know, I think we'll we'll see some uh, some strong female characters in his upcoming uh, *Killers, of the, flower Killers moon. of the Flower Moon*. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so uh, I'm looking forward to that later this year. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, and on today's podcast, we're looking at six films by six of our favorite directors. Seven, actually. Seven, that's right. <laughs> we, <laughs> we added another we, one in We there. added a film. We, our math uh, did not come together uh, this week, and so uh, on this episode, or in this segment, we're going to be looking at three films, uh, and uh, starting with... Uh, uh, a film that I've, I've frequently read about and seen cited as, as a favorite amongst film fans of Ingmar Bergman, and that is 1968's Hour of the Wolf, which he also wrote. And uh, unsurprisingly, uh, like a lot of Bergman films, it's set on a remote island somewhere in Scandinavia. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's about an artist uh, featuring his frequent collaborator, Max von Sydow, Johan Borg, who has vanished and uh, the, the mysterious nature of his kind of breakdown and disappearance are examined over the course of this film. And it's often cited as Bergman, the closest Bergman ever got to a horror film. And uh, there are elements of horror kind of sprinkled throughout his work. I feel like, you know, he was heavily influenced by the work of, say, James Whale and Todd Browning and so on over, you know, because he, he also has a couple of circus films, and that was a Todd Browning kind of thing. And and um, and he's incorporated those elements to things like... Um, through the glass darkly and the virgin spring, but, but here he really delves even further into kind of terror and mystery in a kind of Euro horror sort of manner, maybe even evoking Mario Baba and some of those, uh, kind of Italian horror filmmakers And the story of, of Borg who's, who's vanished and the story is being told, uh, through his diaries and the recollections of his wife, Alma, played by Liv Ullman, another Bergman regular. And uh, so it kind of starts off almost like a documentary with Alma addressing the camera uh, about how her husband disappeared and she stayed on the island and she's also pregnant now with their child. Uh, and, uh, you know, she describes Johannes as being kind of troublesome he's a bit of a misanthrope he doesn't like people very much which is why they're on this remote island so he can work on his paintings and uh you know she says that he liked her because she was a quiet woman so uh you know i don't know what that says i, I guess he just doesn't like to fill the time with conversation i suppose and max von sido is very good as the the brooding artist to you know just Thinks about his work, which he's not very pleased with, and it feels like a, a quintessential Max von Sydow performance.
1: Pretty much, role. yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine anybody else in this role, yeah. and you know, and he, you know, it's not that he's had, you know, he's a painter. He hasn't really hit, you know, he isn't a painter's block per se, but he's not very happy with the work he's been doing, and and he's he's in this dark mood and and prone to violence, and and uh, you know, we we see we see some we flash back to kind of the start of the story as they arrive on this island and we see how rocky and remote it is. Um, and initially, you know, they're a very tender couple, you know, they, they uh, she's sitting in the sunlight and the, you know, the kind of that late summer sun you get in, in Scandinavia and he's drawing her in the sunlight. And uh, But it, he gets more distant as time goes by and, and uh, he, you know, he, he seems to, you uh, he seems to show a lot of contempt for for his uh, his patrons and then people in general, and uh, they come into the circle of of this uh, I guess this sort of family that own the island. I guess they live in they, they call it a castle or a mansion or whatever you want to call it or a summer home, whatever on the other side of the island, and um, and and he's he's fairly contemptuous of them. But there's no other people around and. I guess he decides that they they need to to have some society and at, uh, you know, embarrassingly he encounters a a local counselor named here who's, who's, uh, says he's a fan of his work, but then he pesters him and Johan ultimately strikes him and tells him to shut up and storms off. And then so awkward at, at, uh, at, at the party at the, uh, the mansion, uh, guess who's there (laughs) here trying to make nice with them. and, uh, so, you know, they're hanging out with the local gentry and, and, you know, Johan is visibly disturbed, uh, by the whole thing. He drinks heavily and he gets sort of argumentative and, and, uh, and, and, then the Bergman sort of zooms in on how bourgeois and terrible they are as they complain about their health and the help and the children and all this kind of stuff and, and, um, and then, uh, Alma is also not inner element at all. She's very uncomfortable in this, uh, environment. And, and, uh, you know, he, he thinks that they've kind of picked him to be kind of like, uh, like the monster that they laugh at basically, <laughs> um, is that, he says, at one point he says, I call myself an artist for lack of a better term, um, in my creativity, nothing is self-evident except the compulsion to carry on. And that, uh, through no intent of my own, I've been singled out as something special, like a five-legged calf. Uh, so, so he, he has a kind of a low opinion of, of what he does and, and, and who he is in society and that he just does it because he has to, he has no other means of, of supporting himself and, and no other means of expression. And, uh, but things, things get pretty dark. Um, the, uh, the, the Von Merkins, the, the, the family, um, uh, kind of insinuate uh, themselves into their lives and, and, uh, there's also the specter of a former lover, um, named uh oh, i'm just Is it veronica Ver, Ver, veronica vogler yeah. who's played by ingrid thulin uh we see her at first we see her early in the film in kind of a a weird flashback or vision or whatever um where uh she she appears to him it, it seems like a dream almost where he comes up to her and uh he unzips her dress and then and then it kind of fades uh and then uh when they go to the the castle um the, uh, the countess has, uh, in her bedroom, they have a huge painting of his former lover and she basically kind of rubs Alma's face in it, uh, that, you know, he devoted so much time to, to painting his, uh, his former lover. And, and then, you know, this brings up, there was a whole scandal because, um, you know, I guess she was married and it was the scandal that kind of dragged his name through the mud, which is part another one of the reasons why he wants to be isolated from society. So anyway. Anyway, we go through this long spiral into this nightmarish scenario in the castle, um, where, uh, where Johan kind of has this sort of nightmare in the castle where it just gets, uh, sort of supernatural and creepy. There's, there's a score by uh, Lars large Johan Werl that, uh, really ramps up the, uh, the tension and, the uh, the nervousness and, and, uh, and we almost wonder if like these people are vampires or something like that. They don't it never, the horror never gets that definite, but there's, there's definitely elements uh, of it, um, running through the film. And, uh, at one point, um, uh, the, the, the gentry are setting up Johan to have an affair with Veronica. For some reason, they want to reunite the, the former lovers. And, uh, to the point where, uh, he just goes through this impressionistic nightmare where we're not really sure if it's in his head or if it's really happening. Uh, and then there's other people trying to seduce him. And, and anyway, I don't want to go much further into it than that, but it is a, is a real nightmare scenario, which is of course shot beautifully in black and white by Sven Nykvist. Uh, uh, Bergman's probably most famous, um, Behind the camera collaborator, and uh, and it's very creepy, and I, th- I think I, I'll probably watch it again down the road and get a completely different take on what's happening in this film. But it's it's uh, it's very dreamlike and and mysterious, and th- with some terrific performances.
1: Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that, Stephen. <laughs> Honestly, um, the Crit- it's on Criterion Channel right now from 1968. Uh, I didn't even know Ingmar Bergman made movies like this. Like I was always uh, familiar with his more. Um, you know stayed uh, dramas I mean they've always had sort of a fantasy elements in them but this is I think dramatically terrifying it's rare that I've seen a film yeah. that depicts mental illness as deftly as this one and the price that loved ones pay sometimes to be around someone who struggles to discern what's real what's not and and struggles to be comfortable in their own skin um, yeah hour of the wolf that's it's a strong film for sure.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think it's one of those ones that, that will re- bear repeat viewing and, and it's something you return to. Maybe watch it around Halloween or something like that. It's 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 got a lot of atmosphere and, and lots of uh, details and twists and turns that uh, will probably, once you've watched it and then you go back, knowing what you're going to see, I'm sure it'll... Play out differently in your head, and uh, yeah, it's a re- it's a real uh, real uh, rewarding film. Um, so
1: let's talk about yes. Un Flick, which is I hope I'm pronouncing that right from 1972. This is a Jean-Pierre Melville film. It's his final film. I found it on Hoopla. Of course, Unflick translated directly is. A cop, but it was also known in North America as Dirty Money. They retitled it <laughs> for what it's worth. Yes. Now, I haven't seen all of Melville's work, but one of the things that's been great about this podcast, working, you know, talking with you about uh, movies uh, on Lens Me Your Ears is. Uh, is that you know we've had a chance to dig into some of these filmmakers. Uh, I you know I know he made films starting I think in the late '40s, uh, but I haven't seen anything before Bob Le Flambeur, which I uh, but I really want to see more of him because I really love Melville's work. Uh, oh, I think we talked about uh, the Samurai, the Red Circle, and maybe Army of Shadows. Anyways, you know he's he's a purveyor of stylish French thrillers, very much inspired by Hollywood of the noir era. And uh, this one is considered, I guess, a disappointment after the Red Circle, but and I guess I understand why. It seems mostly an exercise in style, and not much in the way of an emotional investment. But uh, it opens with a bank heist at a branch at a building right on the ocean. This incredibly like vivid scene of like blue, uh, you know, that everything about it is blue, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, and the the it's just there's a storm happening and the waves are crashing over the the breakers. It's Really, it's really something, Um, and uh, yeah, and so men in fedoras and trench coats, you know, case the bank and prepare to take it. Uh, And these are male characters of a type, you know, hard men in hats. Um, I love the visual and audio design. I love that Melville has almost no sense of irony. Sometimes there is a sense of humor, but it's so dry, it could (laughs) could just blow away. Um, You know, if he was such a fan of noir that he injects it directly into the heart of his features. And uh, I also enjoy how often featureless his interiors are. There's almost no personal touch in the offices or in the bank. It's like he wants to make everything as generic and soulless as possible, sort of a minimalist perspective, you could say. And, of course, the powdery makeup on everyone's faces makes all the characters kind of look slightly ill and slightly like each other. (laughs) It's it's a very interesting vibe. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, we've got – Presence of American actors, Richard Krenna and Michael Conrad in amongst the thieves, uh, the heist, the guys doing the heist. I guess, you know, I recognize Conrad from his work in Hill Street Blues and Crenna and from everything. Uh, apparently, krenna I mean, they, I think they were both dubbed by French actors. Uh, Conrad basically yes. barely has any lines until the end. Um, and then right in the center of the thing is Alain Delon as the cop of the title. Uh, he's having an affair with Catherine Deneuve's character, who's also involved with Simon, the Krenna character, who is who's kind sort of a Paris nightclub owner who has this, you know, he's basically an organized criminal Um But the film almost seems disinterested in the love triangle. It just needs something to connect these characters aside from the fact that the cop is chasing these criminals. Uh, It's much more about the world of crime that they live in. Um, Yeah, and so, I mean, it's... I really... I did enjoy the film for a lot. Of course, my... I've got my radar uh, up for political sort of messages from the era in which these films were made. Uh, Delon's cop has an informant who's supposed to be a trans woman. Of course, they called a transvestite at the time, but the actor is actually a woman playing a trans woman. It's an odd choice, but then this was 1972. But it makes me wonder if thematically the film is trying to suggest a homoerotic undertone to some of the male relationships. Maybe that love... you know, maybe the love triangle really is about the cop and the criminal rather than and you know i mean it's really about their affection and connection rather than the connection with the uh, the um a Deneuve character
0: yeah it is unusual for melville i mean it's his last film so i guess he was just trying to do something different but for him to make the main character a cop usually it's it's the folks on the other side of the law mm. that really interest him but but here we've got uh delon who has he's got that connection to the underworld and I guess he shows how kind of unavoidable that is if you're a cop, because you're spending so much time delving into that world, looking for information, looking for clues, looking for suspects. Uh, and eventually you build up these relationships with shadowy figures who have one uh, feet on both sides of the, the legal law line. So, uh, you know, I guess it's interesting in that regard that he's, he's looking at, uh, looking at the whole world of crime from a, from a different perspective, but, um, it's, uh, it's, it, you're right, it's, it's a very kind of dry film in, in, the, in the way that it kind of goes about its business and, and with this very low-key, almost lack of emotion. But, but I, I, I did like the setups, I like the, the grimy early 70s uh, milieu of the film. And and there's a lot of shots of I mean I mean we try to pull a lot of Alan Delon, Delon's kind of blank expression over the course of the film yeah. uh, and there's a lot of scenes of him just kind of staring at people trying to get a read on them and I guess and that happens more than one occasion over the course of the film where he's trying to tell if somebody's lying or, or whatever just by kind of staring into their eyes. And, and I guess that puts us into his kind of mindset that we're trying to do the same thing from a lot of the cast members because everybody is re- has a really great poker face uh, over the course of the film. And you're you're right, it is unfortunate that Catherine Deneuve, uh, her character, doesn't really have a lot to do here other than be that connection between, um, between the, the, the cop and Simon, the... the jazz club owner slash heist planner. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate kind of role for her, but I, I, I guess she wanted to work with Melville and, and, uh, and DeLong, they were old friends and, you know, there's a certain chemistry there, I think that, that you get, there's, that there's some, some history between them. And, and I feel that like that comes across at least. And, and, uh, I know that, uh, we, we had different feelings about the actual heist that happens on the, uh, the train, uh, which, which. I liked because of the models and you thought, it was, well, yeah, you, you had a different opinion. Of,
1: yeah. Of that. I mean, I just thought I, I, I do appreciate model work generally, but there was, um, <laughs> given the grit and also the use of actual locations in this film, which are so well done, yeah. so thoughtful when they go to this event, uh, you basically get a toy train and a toy helicopter <laughs> and it's really blatant.
0: Yeah. All you don't get is a giant lizard. Yeah. We're <laughs> You're really... breathing, radio, radioactive breath everywhere, but yeah, but, I found it kind of charming. I, I didn't, I mean, it does take you out of the film a little bit to be sure, especially when it's so clearly a, the model helicopter uh, and, and some of the model train backgrounds, but they, they try to shroud it in fog as best they can. And, and, uh, but, uh, but I thought the actual heist, the way it's planned out, the way it proceeds without dialogue and this character suitcase, Matthew. Who's like the, the, the smuggler that just the fact that he's known as suitcase by everyone, just to make it obvious. Uh-huh. Um, and he's like this burly guy, kind of reminds me, he looks like red grant uh, in, uh, from Russia with love in a way. And, and uh, I like how that whole, the heist progresses and, and there's a few wrinkles here and there and, uh, and that element of it, I thought uh, that that's kind of, uh, you know, what Melville does best apart from the model work uh, and, and it's, it's very much in that that uh, tradition of of French heist movies with these great silent sequences and of professionals, you know, dutifully going about their job. And uh, yeah, that aspect of it uh, really worked for me too. Well, let's move
1: on to the final movie in our segment, Uh, Spy Game from 2001. We're jumping forward again. And uh, this was one of my picks because, you know, I've long been a fan of Tony Scott, who is never quite as appreciated as his brother Ridley. Both brothers have a slick, undeniable style. Both, I think, came from advertising. Ridley, I think, has made more films that are considered classics or semi-classics like Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, and Gladiator. Uh, Of course, we've talked about Kingdom of Heaven, which is a a terrific film. But Tony was more committed to mainstream Hollywood entertainment during his career. Arguably, I think, his kinetic blockbuster style is a big influence on thrillers and action cinemas um you know with movies like top gun true romance enemy of the state man on fire unstoppable these are all ones i've enjoyed and this one um you know of course people like michael bay and i think Zack snyder are tony scott fans um this this feels i mean i'm glad to have caught up with spy game but by the standards of hollywood spy thrillers this feels like the trashiest of airport reads um and it's, yeah, Robert Redford is Nathan Muir. He's a CIA spy master on his last day before retirement. He's just gotten word that one of his spies, Tom Bishop, played by Brad Pitt, has been arrested in China and accused of spying. He's going to be executed in advance of a major U.S.-China trade agreement. Uh, and the CIA want to sell the story that Bishop went rogue, so not to endanger this agreement and just kind of wash their hands of him. And then we flash back to Vietnam where the two men met. Um, Bishop's a sterling sharpshooter. I mean, the timing is a bit weird. If this is the early 70s and the movie is set in the early 90s, why do Redford and Pitt more or less look unchanged throughout (laughs) this? That's one of the questions I had, but whatever.
0: Anyway. (laughs) Well, they do shoot the Vietnam scenes in sepia tones. Right. To kind of, I guess, to mask Redford's wrinkles at this
1: point. I mean, there's some, I found there was some questionable use of Dire Straits' brothers in arms (laughs) um, suggesting a hammier hand than Scott would usually use. Uh, and we get more flashbacks to their work behind the Iron Curtain and in Lebanon. None of this is is great, I would say. I think what this movie is really about is a chance for two generations of Hollywood's best-loved blonde leading men to square off. And generally, The Elder comes off looking uh, a lot better in terms of his management of character, but it could be that there is more of the character on the page in the script. That's definitely the case. Then, I think. then Pitt is allowed to have. Uh, it's a bigger and a richer part where Pitt mostly gets to run around looking handsome. Um,. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. It's fine. I I wouldn't rush out to see it for anyone. Mostly, I also appreciate support work from people like Benedict Wong, David Hemmings, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, Stephen Delane, you know, but this, I don't think this is essential.
0: And Ken Leung, who we'll see in another film that's coming up, who most people, I remember, I think I first saw him on Lost. Mm, He shows up as one of the, one of um, Bishop's uh, sort of... uh, team at the early in the film yeah i I, I feel like uh, this film probably could have been a lot better in a lot of ways maybe if the the time frame had been shrunken a little bit and maybe if uh, you know but Pitts and Redford's characters were a little better integrated i mean the, you're right the the time span between Vietnam, the end of the Cold War, and then you know the 90s it it doesn't uh, i guess it's meant to show that they have this long standing working friendship, as it were. Uh, but it, it does it does stretch credulity a little bit. I, mean, I, it, I feel like uh, the script probably had a lot of work done on it, not always for the better. Mm. Um, th- I think the original writer was Michael Frost Beckner, who also wrote uh, Sniper with Tom Berenger and Cutthroat Island are his main credits. And then the pendulum swinging the other way, uh, David Arada, who wrote Broke Down Palace and Children of Men, uh, also worked. I'm, I'm guessing he was brought in to to kind of, you know, improve the story and and probably did what he could with a fairly um, boilerplate kind of spy story. So, uh, I, I think I liked it more than you did, though, uh, overall, mostly because of the Redford stuff. He, you know, it's, it's, he, he's about to retire and, and and he's just trying to clean out his office, but he's got to, you know, save his friend who's in about to be executed in China and he's doing all this telephone diplomacy to kind of get, to get these wheels in motion to, to do what he can. And, uh, the plausibility as the film goes on the plausibility of what he's doing seems you know more and more remote uh especially when um when the final plan kind of goes into action uh but uh but I, I liked all his uh machinations as he's trying to get around the the brass at the cia by you know using other people's phones and and dealing with uh some of his contacts overseas and you see how how well regarded he is in the spy community and and how you know he's the last of a dying breed and he's being replaced by kind of pencil pushers and you know bureaucratic uh, busybodies as opposed to you know real actual spies and agents and guys who you know can get stuff done on the ground uh, that you might think is kind of impossible so uh, that aspect of the film is is kind of what keeps you going through through a fairly standard kind of spy rescue kind of story and you know, I'm guessing that's that's probably the stuff that Errata brought to the story um, after a fairly fairly basic get get Brad Pitt out of trouble <laughs> storyline. And we also had uh, uh, I, I, I'm not sure if you mentioned it or not, but we also get uh, like a one scene appearance or maybe two scenes with uh, Charlotte Rampling, the star of our last episode.
1: Yeah, oh, right. Who yeah, shows that's up right. as
0: uh, as a uh, Anne Car- uh, Cathcart, an operative in uh, Berlin uh, as the uh, I guess uh, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and she's uh, you know she's. There, she's gone, and she's there and gone in the blink of an eye. But uh, you know, she certainly makes an impression in her brief uh, appearance, sort of midway through the film.
1: Okay, on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, we are, in fact, looking at you know films by directors who we. greatly esteem, <laughs> uh, whether or not our favorites are not, or, you know, are close to, and uh, films that we haven't seen of theirs before, giving us a chance to go back and, and explore some pictures that we didn't know or haven't seen in a long time. For me, Inside Man, I saw it in cinemas when it came out in 2006, but I have not revisited it, and you hadn't seen it, Stephen.
0: Never. I meant to see it when it came out, and it came and went so quickly, I never got a chance.
1: Uh, it's available now on Netflix, and I do remember when it came out, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, Spike Lee He's showing off. This is his version of Brian De Palma doing The Untouchables or Mission Impossible. He's going to show all those producers in Hollywood that he can do a straight ahead, like, entertaining genre picture. And it's very slick, and it's quite satisfying. I mean, of course, Lee had also directed The 25th Hour and Clockers. So I think people knew he could do big-budget Hollywood thrillers, but this feels like the biggest and the flashiest cast. And it's basically four bank robbers invading a bank in Lower Manhattan. They take about 30 hostages, and they're professional, and they're cool, and they have a plan. And Denzel Washington, Chiwetel Ejiofor play cops. Maybe uh, with not such a squeaky-clean background. It suggests that the, the Washington's Detective Fraser may have absconded with some drug money earlier in his career. Uh, Willem Dafoe plays a tactical officer. Christopher Plummer is the rich guy who started the bank and has something in a safety deposit box he needs to keep hidden. This item becomes part of the deal, though it's never explained, well... I mean, I think we do kind of get why he didn't destroy it, because he feels this connection to his past, his evil, the evil deeds of his past. He hires Jodie Foster, who is great here. Uh, yeah. She is just someone, she's a fixer. And she works for powerful people. And she pressures the mayor to let her into the crime scene and to negotiate directly with the bank robbers. It's an entertaining piece of genre filmmaking, suspenseful, you know, actors doing sterling work. And I think Lee brings a lot of great New York City touches with the day players, hostages especially, many of whom get interviewed through the course of the movie as we flash forward to the week following the bank robbery. Now uh, I'm thinking of the little boy in his uber-violet video game. <laughs> yes, uh, oh my! That
0: game is nuts. I'm
1: yeah, <laughs> created for the movie, not a real game. Um, yeah, and the Sikh gentleman who wants his turban back. There's lots of comments on class, on race, on New York post 9/11, which makes the piece feel more real and more contemporary, and I think more, I, I think richer because uh, it's not just about the genre. Uh, there's a great sense of humor as well. that sort of New York cockiness. Uh, also, really enjoyed the. Terrence Blanchard's score. He brings a real John Barry quality to the proceedings. I'm not entirely sold by the mystery, the denouement, and how the co- the robbers do what they do. But, you know, it's entertaining enough getting where it's going. I don't think the destination is everything in this film. And Clive Owen, you know, it's funny. I don't think I quite ever believe his American accent. It's a little (laughs) rocky here. Uh, Never been a strong suit of his. But, I mean, he's a very compelling actor. I just, like, when you compare him to, and I'm sorry, but you compare him to Chiwetel Ejiofor, who is right on the money with his New York accent. It's like, you know, yeah, just... I found it took me out of the film a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think they should have just made him a Brit. There's no reason for him to be a Brit who can like occasionally do an American accent when he's like on the phone with the cops or whatever. Like mm-hmm. he's meant to be kind of a, not necessarily a master of disguise, but certainly very duplicitous in, in dealing with the cops and feeding them misinformation and pulling the wool over their eyes and so on. And, and uh, you know, he's certainly believable while he's doing that, but you're, you're right. You know, maybe they, they could have found a way to make him a little more comfortable with his character. But... Uh, This was originally, I guess, a script that uh, Ron Howard was going to make. Uh, and I'm sure it would have been a fine you know by the books kind of heist movie in that regard but I think Spike Lee does bring a lot of his own energy to it uh, you know there's certainly a couple of shots that are trademark Spike Lee shots uh-huh. uh, over the course of the film that, that you know they let you know exactly who's directing which is great because it it, it it totally works it puts it right in in his uh, Bailey wick as it were and and yeah that he, he does bring that New York energy to the film in a way that I don't think uh, Ron Howard would so we really get a feel for the district where it takes place, and and the scenes inside the bank and outside of the bank, everything fits together quite well. I thought over the course of this film, and it's it's uh, I think a lot of people kind of slept on this movie at the time, and it's it's definitely worth a revisit.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's Inside Man, directed by Spike Lee, and on Netflix. Final film in our list today is Certain Women from 2016 we found it on the criterion channel this is a film by kelly reichert who's recently you know i volunteer at carbon arc cinema and we showed one of her her most recent films showing up there and it was such a delight to see and i realized that i had not seen all of her earlier work and uh She's had a long career, uh, you know, doing films going back to the 90s. And uh, I think I first found her, uh, Wendy and Lucy, I think, was the first film of hers I'd seen. And it was, I found it really moving. And this is, uh, you know, this is another sort of quiet story of ordinary people living their lives in the American landscape, especially the Pacific Northwest.
0: Yeah, she's a filmmaker I've got a lot of time for. And there's still a few of her her films that I haven't seen. Uh, For example, I I haven't seen Wendy and Lucy. I'm, I'm looking forward to catching up with that. And I think Meeks Cut Off is probably the first thing of hers that I saw, and First Cow was one of my favorite films uh, of the year that it came out a couple of years ago. So, uh, and I I'm, I can't wait to see showing up. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but this is a film that uh, came out I guess in 2016, and and is uh, has a. Super high powered cast telling these stories of three women or four women, rather, sort of based on the the short stories of uh, I'm gonna mispronounce this name, I know it, Maley Malloy or Male Malloy, Uh, and she said it in, I believe, uh, I think, Montana. Um, thereabouts. It's, it's definitely on the prairie. So yeah, mean, it is Montana. It's, for it's got sure. that prairie town, country milieu about it, which kind of sets it apart. And, and she makes good use of, of the scenic locations. But basically, it's a story of three women. We, we, we start off with Laura Dern as a lawyer, who's got a very problematical client in uh, Fuller, played by Jared Harris, who's, who's terrific uh, as as this guy who suffered a work workplace injury and then accepted a settlement that he probably should have fought harder for, but he's kind of put himself in a legal bind and his life is completely falling apart. And he blames everyone else but himself for it. He's a, a drinker and, and 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 an abuser and and Laura Dern is just reached her limit with this guy as he, he basically, uh, overextends his welcome past the point of her being able to do anything for him. So she's the first woman who, who we get introduced in, in her situation, in her life, and then we get, um, Michelle Williams as Gina, who's, um, a young mother, who's, you know, her. Life is in a bit of upheaval. She and her husband, played by James Lagro, who's great to see, great to see uh, him as her husband Ryan. They're building a new house, so they're kind of living rough while they build a new house. And you know, they're a little bit at odds. He doesn't take her seriously enough, and uh, they're involved in a deal with an old man to get some uh, some sandstone from his property that they're going to use in their new house. And and how the negotiations go, and how she's kind of disregarded by both her husband and uh, and the older gentleman who's uh, selling the sandstone. And and then uh, we get a third story featuring uh, Kristen Stewart, who's a teaching a, a nighttime uh, law course and, and a young woman who um, becomes uh, fascinated with her, uh, Lily Gladstone, who's known just as the rancher. And she just kind of stumbles into this class one day, but she becomes infatuated with Kristen Stewart's character and they become friends. You know, we see their friendship kind of evolve until uh, Elizabeth Travis, uh, Kristen's character, kind of drops out of sight uh, because she has to drive four hours <laughs> to teach this course and she's kind of fed up. And the the rancher wants to kind of further the relationship and we kind of see where that goes. And there's just these kind of elliptical portraits of these women's lives and and how uh, they're they're trying to maintain agency in their daily activities with their family and with their friends and with, you know, potential partners or, you know, hopeful partners or whatever. And it's a a bit of a shaggy dog of a movie, but that's kind of Kelly Reichardt's thing. And we just enjoy the time that we spend with these characters and uh, their daily dilemmas.
1: Yeah, it is an incredibly vivid uh, sense of place. It's yes. one of the things I really loved about the landscape. I love that it's just sort of on the edge of a Western. At one point, there's a man with a rifle seeking yes. justice. There's a woman on a horse. The big hats, the diner, the whole thing has a kind of Edward Hopper quality to it, that existential American loneliness. It reminds me of uh, of kind of... I mean, in some ways, it reminds me a bit of Fargo, but yeah. uh, without the humor. <laughs> you know, it's a little more solemn and a little more quiet. And it might be my favorite Kelly Reichert film to date, so I'm so glad I had the chance to see it. Um, I think... Of the three stories, I drifted a little bit in the middle one, the Michelle Williams story, uh, which I just felt was a little too static. Yeah. But uh, but overall, I I loved how the whole thing had a mood that I I really I really loved. And that has been lends me your ears for another episode of movie talk here, and you can reach out to us if you'd like. We are on. Twitter still on Lens Me Your Ears, and uh, we're on Facebook. And Stephen, you're, you've got a handle on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at ns
0: underscore s c o o k e.
1: And you can find me on Twitter uh, named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all you do to make us sound good. And thank you again for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, and we'll be talking about movies again very soon.